I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. The coronavirus pandemic has caused cracks in our normal routines, and the academic drug discovery pipeline was not spared. As universities across the world closed and sent students and faculty home for their own safety, countless research projects were abandoned or even canceled. This affected everything from grants to graduation dates and might have spelled the end of promising projects that would be difficult to restart. As we move towards a new normal, how can we prevent similar situations in the future? After all, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's how easily this could happen again. Here to propose his solution is Joe Cornicelli, Senior Director of Pharmacology for Charles Rivers In Vivo Services. He thinks a closer partnership between academic labs and contract research organizations like Charles River could keep valuable research on track. And to speak from his own experience, we are also joined by Dr. George Painter from Emory University School of Medicine. He is the president and CEO for the Emory Institute for Drug Development and has been working on the coronavirus all year. Welcome, Joe and George. Hello, glad to be here. Glad to have you here. So let's start with George. Can you tell me about how the pandemic affected labs like yours? It's had a major impact on lab operation. In fact, for three months, the labs were closed. So we were totally shut down as the university tried to figure out how to safely respond to the pandemic and how to protect the students. The campus was closed. Access to the laboratories were on a emergency use only. And so I guess really January, February, March, we began to contemplate opening the laboratories and then access was again very limited. And based on spacing in the lab, we could have only so many people present. So our operations were initially stopped and then significantly curtailed. And at this point, they really are not up to capacity like they were in December prior to the uh, outbreak. All right. On to Joe. What did the chaos look like from your end? Well, I think George has uh, kind of summarized it fairly succinctly. But w what we've seen in talking with our academic partners has been, and I think chaos is, is a perfect word for it. There have been a lot of uh, loss of some very valuable resources that were in play at the time uh, when the universities shut down. No one was really prepared for it, and no one uh, specifically had a business continuity plan. So it's been, uh, I think, just a bit of a jumble right now across the board. Yeah. I guess, would you both kind of agree that there seems to be a big difference between maybe having a disaster preparedness plan and implementing something like this? I mean, not that any of us had a plan for a global disaster, but, you know, planning and execution are two very different things. Yeah, I would say so, Mary. I think it's been very difficult to plan for something like this. It's so broadly impactful. Something that Joe just said, uh, we just experienced. In December, we were in the development process funded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency to develop a antiviral drug for influenza, including highly pathogenic avian influenza. 
Well, it happened that the drug is active against SARS and MERS. So come January, everything accelerated. We immediately began searching for a commercial partner who had more wherewithal to accelerate the drug development program. And they're not being a paradigm for accelerating it, but rather just reverting to standard procedure in the face of time being so impactful. It was very frustrating. And it just goes to show the depth to which these kinds of situations, these pandemics can impact organizations and things that people didn't even contemplate getting in the way become great limiting and sit on the critical path to getting a countermeasure. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and to follow on with that, George, I think that, you know, part of this has to do with the mission of academic institutions. I mean, by definition, they're there to teach. And the bulk of biomedical research currently is, is translationally based to try to find some, some practical application for that in the biomedical realm. And so to follow on with that commercially, companies like contract research organizations have you know continuity of business plans put in place what if there's a, a tornado what if you know there's a fire what if there is something that would disrupt your business and how will that business continue so i, I think that what this what this begs the question or gives at least a chance for a reset in the paradigm to you know for academic institutions to to develop that that continuity that that insurance plan if you will by right. partnering with a research organization that might be able to help them. I was going to say, that's a perfect segue, Joe. Could you explain in, in sort of bare bones fashion what a partnership between an academic lab and a CRO might look like? Yeah, so from the very basic sorts of things, CROs can be used to expand bandwidth or expertise. So they can you know, take on those assays, which are rather rote, and, and tend to be, for lack of a better word, let's call them industrialized or commoditized. And, but then there are other ways that you could be very creative with contract research organizations. So getting them to be part of discovery teams and development teams that would be able to step in in an emergent situation would be another way to do something like that. Mm-hmm. So George, uh, what, what would this look like from your end? What do you think the pros and cons of this kind of arrangement could be? Well, I'm very much in favor of these kinds of relationships. And it's rather interesting because when we were forced to accelerate the timeline after discussions with FDA to try to open clinical studies, we actually reached out for help from contract research organizations. Okay, you can edit it. Can I say Charles River? (laughs) Yeah, you can say Charles River. (laughs) So we actually reached out to Charles River to get some tests done that were sitting on the critical path to moving the drug into clinical trials. And I think that sort of emphasized how easy and how quickly these kinds of relationships that facilitate drug development in an academic environment can be set up. So I'm very much in favor of this. And I think once and hopefully the impact of the pandemic has waned, that we can go back and really discuss at a nuts and bolts level how to integrate the discovery and development process within the university, within the capacity of a large organization such as Charles River. Yeah. So that actually brings up the next point, which is, is there a value in a partnership like this, even during the so-called normal times? You know, I, I think that there is. And, and again, getting back to being, you know, very creative and taking on some of the suggestions that, that George just mentioned here is that, you know, there is a 
the breadth and depth of experience within the CRO community with respect to drug discovery and development. Um, you know, a lot of us, myself included, have backgrounds uh, in, in large pharma. So you have all of that expertise at your hand that's available to, uh, you know, to help guide along the way. So I think that there's a chance to do that and then to, uh, to parlay you know, those key pieces, like George just mentioned, that the university needs to get done, but it just can't do it or can't do it quickly enough or with enough expertise. Uh, George, what, what do you think about something like that? I agree. I, I come from a large pharma background, too, before coming back to academia. Honestly, there's a lot of very specialized capacity that's needed to advance drugs. It's either impractical or financially impossible to bring online in an academic environment. So why should you? I think the issue will be how to set up that kind of relationship, both in terms of how teams work together seamlessly under a, a development plan. And all of our development plans have been under government contracts. So they have pre-agreed timelines and pre-agreed no-go go, no-go statement. So I think it can be done. And I think it really is something that will facilitate response to the next coronavirus or the next emerging disease that comes along. It will really help to have these relationships in place. One of the other things that we've been able to do, and, and I think that this kind of speaks to the translational aspect of it, is a few years ago it was part of, of a Charles River task force that was called upon by an academic institution to evaluate a series of uh, internal grant applications that that university's tech transfer office had solicited from its faculty. And the objective of our input in this was to identify those studies that would bring these projects closer to a go, no go decision point. What we did at Charles River was we sent a team to this institution. We met with the individuals, we questioned them, brought back some of their information to a larger Charles River team, and then came up with an idea as to what we could do within the confines of the budget, which is always very important, as to what we would determine would be the deliverables and the timelines against those deliverables. And all that was done gratis with the idea that, uh, or in the assurance actually, that if those grants were awarded, that Charles River would get the work. Some of those grants were awarded, the projects were executed and brought forward to those next go, no-go decision points. So I think that that's one rather creative way that you can uh, work with, with a contract research organization to bring those translational ideas forward uh, to the next go, no-go decision point and leverage a lot of that institutional uh, and industrial knowledge that, that's out there that, uh, as George just alluded to, that many folks just don't have an idea of, of what, they, what they need, what they really need. So you're basically saying that CROs could keep these projects on track and meeting their deadlines for grants. But uh, George, I was wondering, I don't know anything about grant writing. So would this be the sort of thing that you could factor into a grant proposal, um, a, you know, a budget set aside for work requested from a CRO? There's a distinct difference in how contracts and grants are administered. When you write a response to a request for proposals for a contract, that's the point at which it would be best to interact with the CRO 
because you can help with the budget, you can help with the timeline. Honestly, the model that Joe threw out about interacting early is the right one, I believe, and that would be the best time. I like that idea. Yeah, that you know, sense. and I think to add some value to, to that, George, is, is that in the translational realm, while the science is all, generally speaking, really, really good, the knowledge of what's drug-like and what's non-drug-like, that expertise, that knowledge base is really pretty wide. And oftentimes we've come across individuals who have touted that they have the drug for the treatment of X, Y, or Z. And when you dig deeper into it, what you find is that they don't have a drug. What they have is an idea that could be parlayed into a drug, but it's an idea. So, you know, I think that using contract research organization that has some experience in drug discovery and development and working with regulatory agencies can add some value to that, that you really can't put a price tag on. Well, yeah, it's funny you talk about this knowledge base because I think that the main objection someone might have listening to this would be that students go to universities to learn how to do this research. So by taking those tasks away from the students, are we depriving them of training? And from our end, Joe, are we depriving ourselves of not having a trained workforce to draw from in the future? You know, that that's a good question, uh, Mary, and it's one that I've, I've thought about quite a bit. And I think it comes back to what the end game is. So if the end game is to teach, and that's what you want to do, then by all means, you need to teach. But if you're working on, as like George's example, if you're up against a deadline and you need to have it done now and you need to have it done right, you're taking a huge risk in putting that in the hands of someone who has never done that before. You know, when you go in for neurosurgery, you want a surgeon who's done it many, many times before and not someone who's got the book open uh, while they're lopping the top of your head off. Now, that may be a bit of a of a stretch, <laughs> but I think you get my, my point. What do you think, George? I agree. We, we don't have the option of messing up a study because if someone doesn't know how to do it. I don't think that this kind of arrangement is, is a negative in terms of training students. We bring people in and pull them along through the development process, and they actually get trained by participating and taking part in all of the interactions with whoever's executing on the studies. We let the students sit in while we have those discussions and why protocols are developed. So actually, in a way, Mary, those kind of interactions facilitate people learning people learning the development process. It gives them a greater exposure to highly experienced people. Given what we've seen so far as this pandemic has progressed, do you think that many universities are going to be taking this opportunity to institute a program like this? Well, I, I can answer from Emory's perspective and our collaborators. I think everybody will be interested in this. I think if you look at major research universities, one of their remits is to answer the mail with respect to emerging public health threats. And I think you've seen a lot of universities rally to the cause going forward because of that mission and also because of the funding available to support basic research all the way to translational research to clinical practice that I think everyone will be enthusiastic about participating and about leveraging their capacity by setting up these kinds of interactions. Okay, great. Well, we're going to 
change tactics entirely and think further ahead. So just out of curiosity, what do each of you think will be some of the major changes to academic research and drug development due to this global event? So go ahead, George. I was going to say that I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, after pandemic wanes somewhat, there'll be some fairly significant inquiries into response. And that will include response by federally funded agencies. And from that process, I think there are going to be a lot of issues around how funding, how money is distributed. And that really is one of the big drivers in academic research and academic development. I think there'll be a lot more attention on the development of countermeasures to emerging disease. And I think all of that will lead to a call for greater integration across institutions, whether those institutions are private or they're commercial, public or private. So I think what you're contemplating is actually very timely, um, integrating process for greater time and cost efficiency. That's what's going to be called for. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Joe? Well, I think from our biopharmaceutical and pharmaceutical partners, I think that they're going to look a little bit more closely at their business continuity plans. One of the reasons that some of that dried up, uh, you know, uh, that research dried up was that because simply because pharma didn't have a way to effectively get assets transferred, you know, test article transfer, transferred, physically transferred from place to place. And I think that that's sort of a technical thing that that will work out. From a more philosophical uh, point of view, I would hope that, you know, a lot of academic institutions would take this opportunity to really take a deep dive into looking at what their current research paradigm is. And that some of them, as Emory have done, use strategic partners to make sure that their work gets done. Others have tried to build this brick and mortar uh, sort of thing. And when you do that, now you're, all your eggs are in one basket. So uh, maybe they'll take this opportunity to think, are we really doing the things that add value to what it is that we're doing? Maybe we should focus on only those things that only we can do. And we do really, really well. And things that are kind of nice to have, and that could, should we, you know, uh, farm that out? so that we can focus our resources and our efforts on the things that, that will really make a difference to bringing you know, these projects to the next level. I think that probably in general for every business and every individual, this whole event can give us a chance to take stock of how we do everything from you know, running our economy to washing our hands properly, which apparently we've all been doing wrong all this time. <laughs> Well, you know, I think some someone once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And that, you know, we focused on a lot of the negative that, you know, has accompanied the, this COVID pandemic. But there is an opportunity here. And that opportunity is, to, again, to, to maybe reset how we're doing things. Are we, Is this really the right way to do it? Is it the best way to do it? Is it the only way to do it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. You know, the process of drug development and regulatory oversight has been under examination. And there is a lot of ongoing effort or was a lot of ongoing effort prior to the pandemic to figure out how to make that process more time and cost efficient. I agree with Joe that the outcome of the pandemic is going to be a much harder look at all of the steps involved in that process. Yeah. Well, thank you both for joining me. Uh, this has been a really interesting discussion. Thank you for having me. 
It's a pleasure. Thanks, Great. Mary.